Today on Ag News Daily. To keep it very simple, a negative global wind is what we're in now. And what that is, is more of La Nina-like conditions. And that simply means more ridging than we're used to. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by co-hosts Mike Pearson and Ashton Carr. And today is also WASD Report Day, Mike. Yes, indeed. This is the first agricultural supply and demand estimate since USDA released their acreage reports on the 30th of June. And by and large, the numbers came in roughly in line with expectations. Corn, beans, and wheat were all within, oh, a tens of millions of bushels of uh, where they ended up, uh, USDA ended up reporting the numbers, really not hugely shocking to the market in any capacity, but we're definitely seeing a market response today, Delaney. We certainly are. We saw corn down about eight to 10 cents on the day, as well as soybeans, not quite closed here, adjusted here as we're recording the podcast, but uh, they definitely traded those numbers. They did. I've got the ending stocks in front of me here, which is really what the trade was keeping an eye on today. USDA didn't do anything with corn yields. They still held them at unchanged, waiting for the bulk of this weather to roll through this summer on both corn and soybeans. So no shocks there. The well, no, no real shocks anywhere, I guess I should say. So ending stocks for corn, U.S. ending stocks came in at 2.648 billion bushels. Now, that is a huge drop from last month's report. We're down about 675 million bushels from the June report. But remember, a lot of that was priced in already by the market immediately on uh, June 30th or the subsequent days when we realized that acreage was going to be a lot smaller. The trade was expecting we'd see 2.683 billion bushels. So we were really, gosh, what? 15 million bushels off what the trade was anticipating, totally neutral, you know, looking at it from a fundamental perspective. Soybeans ending stocks came in at 425 million bushels, again, fairly close to what the trade was estimating, and actually a little higher than USDA's June expectation. USDA backed off some exports, and interestingly, residual use of soybeans is now pegged by the USDA at negative 46 million bushels, which to read it on its face would say that residual users of soybeans are actually putting 46 million bushels into the balance sheet, which of course doesn't make any sense at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some folks' thoughts are, and particularly Darren Newsom, he and I have been tweeting about this a little bit today. It, really, this was a way for the USDA to reduce uh, export demand without having to reduce export demand as these phase one and phase two negotiations are ongoing. So that was the, uh, the surprise. They're a little higher than expectations, but again, 425 million bushel carryout. Wheat, 942 million bushel carryout, slightly below what the trade was anticipating, and about 18 million bushels above where we were back in June. No real shocks on the June side. And that's for the new crop carryout, Delaney. Yeah, and to follow up with your export comments, we also have been hearing rumors, of course, that China is suffering from corn production issues. And I've written a couple comments this morning, some analysis that went ahead and totaled up what USDA thinks that China has purchased. And honestly, it's a significant amount, about 1.3 million metric tons, according to the latest USDA export sales notice. And so, of course, they are taking some of those numbers into effect as well. But, you know, I don't know. I 
I really want us to continue having a rally, but looking at these numbers, we did see, of course, the lower acreage numbers. But then we also saw today President Trump release some comments about a potential phase two deal with China and has basically said that he doesn't see a phase two trade deal with China happening anytime soon because of the sour over the coronavirus pandemic, as well as other issues. And he says that the relationship with China has been severely damaged because they could have stopped the plague and didn't. So he's not very happy. He doesn't sound like, at least from his initial comments this morning, he doesn't want to continue negotiating a phase two agreement. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've read a lot of different thoughts on it. And I want to highlight one thing you mentioned there because I do think it deserves a greater mention that 1.3 million metric tons mm-hmm. of corn that China purchased, that was purchased today. You know, China mm-hmm. today yep. bought 675,000 tons of old crop corn and 600,000 tons of new crop corn, which is the second largest one-day corn purchase in the history of this country. So it's a phenomenal day for corn sales, but you're right. That was announced this morning. We saw corn fight its way back to positive. You know, we had the neutral, maybe slightly bearish Wazi numbers come out at 11 and President Trump's comments. And I think a lot of folks, the more cynical amongst us, perhaps me included, are looking at this. President Trump is watching his uh, you know, poll numbers drop. And one way that leaders have consistently been able to rally troops and rally folks around them is by finding an outside agent of ill will. In this case, President Trump has frequently relied on China as the evil villain. So we're entering this phase now, probably all the way through November where everything bad that happens, we're going to blame on China and we're going to you know, probably be putting higher tariffs back on the table. We'll probably hear a lot more hawkish talk when it comes to China. The administration is expected to announce some comments on the South China Sea here in this next week. Um, we could see the export potential start to dwindle. And something that Darren Newsom mentioned last time he was on the podcast, China has made a lot of future purchases mm-hmm. for corn and soybeans not a lot of purchases have actually shipped. So this would allow China the opportunity two months, one month, two weeks down the line to say, you know what, we're canceling those purchases and we could see prices start to drop even further. So definitely a lot of risk out there in the world today. It's so strange, too. You mentioned the the hero villain complex. We do that a lot, I feel like, here in the United States about creating heroes and villains. So it's funny you mentioned that. Well, and, you know, I think we in the United States see it a lot of mm-hmm. us doing in the United States, but it happens everywhere. You know, the Chinese are, are certain well, out yes. villains just as much as we are. Yeah, everybody does it. It's human nature to find uh, a scapegoat, so to speak, for your troubles. And it certainly helps in politics to have an enemy that isn't you to blame things on. Very true. Very true. But Ashton, what's your news today? Hopefully you've got something to pick us up after that hero villain complex discussion. Well, I don't know if this is a positive or a negative, depending on how you view it, but a German meatpacking group at the center of coronavirus outbreak said today that it would hire 1,000 workers and stop using subcontractors for animal slaughtering and meat processing. And so, of course, this is kind of a story that we've been following, or not rather the story, but... um, 
just the the trend in subcontractors and uh, migrant workers, that kind of stuff. But this meatpacking plant in Western Germany has been closed for three weeks now after more than 1,500 workers tested positive for COVID-19, which sparked a lockdown for 600,000 people in the surrounding region, which was lifted this week as well. And German slaughterhouses have faced a little bit of criticism for the widespread use of subcontracted migrant workers from Eastern Europe with cramped accommodations suspected of contributing to coronavirus outbreaks. And so They have started a pilot project to directly employ 1,000 staff in slaughtering and meatpacking by September 30th as a plan to end all subcontracting in slaughtering and meat processing by the end of this year. Yeah, I saw that. I also saw a report driven by the exact same plant closure you mentioned that German pork producers are now in the exact same position American pork producers were in back in March where they've got hogs coming of weight and they've got to get them moved off the farm. So they're selling them at massive losses and in some cases looking to depopulate their herds. Yeah, that's the that's the kicker is the depopulation. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You know, we've talked quite a bit about labor shortages in agriculture in America, in Germany, in Costa Rica, you know, you name it, every place has been affected. And I saw a tweet that I thought was interesting. We have entered a discussion in this country about how we are going to reopen schools. And it really doesn't sound like there's a good way to do it that makes people happy, right? We're either we're going to require masks or we're not, we're going to do in-person or do distance. It seems like no matter what we propose, everybody is frustrated. And I saw a tweet over on Ag Twitter this morning that said maybe what we should do is take all these kids in these cramped and these, uh, you know, dense cities and send them out to farms and work as labor <laughs> for a year. And huh. they'll learn a lot on the ground. It's science, it's math, it's uh, PE all rolled into one. And the farmers get some, some ag labor to get their work done. I thought it sounded like a winning proposition. Yeah, that's uh, quite interesting. I know when Oh, we were going up. We had cousins that lived in cities that would always get sent to the Howell Farms for a few days, and that seemed to really shape them right up. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, gosh, let's see. Just kidding, listeners. We're not actually advocating for child labor. That would be awesome, but probably not legal. So we're not going not gonna to advocate for it. Um, I, I just wanted to circle back real quick to China one more time because we, uh, you know, whether or not this trade deal happens, if China's hog herd continues to grow, it was expected that they were going to need to buy soybean. Uh, but by bean meal, looks like Argentina might be able to export less as we go throughout this year. It's probably going to benefit U.S. uh, beans and bean meal producers. However, we have also seen increasing African swine fever outbreaks in China. Uh, Parts of southern China have seen very, very heavy rains, massive flooding. In fact, like 800-year flooding events have been happening down in parts of southern China. And it is believed that those flooding events are carrying carcasses or waste contaminated with African swine fever, and it is causing fresh outbreaks. And um, we don't yet know the full scope of these outbreaks in the southern uh, you know, regions of China, but we do know that they are happening predominantly among smaller pig farmers, although we have seen some corporate farms have outbreaks so far. Um, one of the Chinese analysts who studies the hog industry there was shocked. Uh, this uh, person's name is Shandong Yonghe, said that even the medium to large farms were hit So this could be interesting, particularly as farmers have traditionally in China buried their infected hogs. Well, a lot of this high water level is kind of forcing some of those carcasses back to the surface. Mm. So gross, but 
we'll have to wait and see what this actually does to the Chinese herd and whether or not the Chinese can get it back contained or continue to expand their hogs in the Northeast, which is where they've been trying to move their, their large-scale herds. Oh, the, yeah, the floating hogs creates a very visual image in my head. Yeah, a lot of uh, pigskin balloons full of African swine fever floating down the rivers. Thank you for that. Lovely. You're welcome, folks. Hope you've already eaten your lunches. Mm-hmm. I think mine might be if coming not, back up now. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. pish posh, Delaney. You're a farm girl. You've <laughs> seen carcasses rotting in the sun. You're right. I have. I've smelled them, too, and it's very not really very pleasant. No, no, not at all. Well, what other headlines do you have for us, Delaney? Let's see. You know, uh, again, as a, besides WASD, it was a little bit of a slower news day for today. So I think I am pretty much about out of news. Ashton, what about you? You know, I'm right there with you. I was just watching for the WASD and looking more at cotton. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I've got just one quick story, and it's something that we've talked about on this podcast in the past, which is the battle for nutritional quality amongst soybean growers between the U.S. and Brazil. Uh, a couple of years ago, some, some massive studies were done that showed Brazil might have some nutritional advantages in their soybeans, in particular in their processed meal, that we can't compete with here in this country. However, a new analysis of 20 studies of almost 2,000 samples of soybean meal has uh, come into play. It's called a meta-study, where it's a study studying studies. Um, and they have come out and saying that uh, U.S. bean meal is actually better. In fact, it's the highest nutritional quality compared with Argentina, Brazil, and India. And uh, this is going to allow companies to use a nutrient value calculator. Uh, This is being developed by a company called Genesis Feed Technologies. And you can use this calculator to determine how this different nutrient value can play into the bottom line as you're feeding bean meal to livestock. So I think this is interesting. We've talked quite a bit about finding new ways to monetize uh, changes on the farm and getting paid for nutrient quality might be the wave of the future. And now it sounds like we've got a way to quantitatively do Mm -hmm. that, which is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. It's very interesting, too. Yeah, so we'll keep track of this. I'll send an email out to the folks at Genesis Feed and see if we can't get them on to explain how all of this stuff breaks down. Yeah, that would be a really interesting interview. I hope so. But I tell you what, if we are out of news, should we see where these markets wrapped up for the week? Let's do that, Mike, right after we hear a quick funny bit from our friend Tim the Dairy Farmer. It's your buddy Tim again. My grandpa always had a saying, there is no house big enough for two families. And that's why he was the greatest single wide trailer salesman ever. This might sound a little harsh, but there is no reason that in-laws should ever come over and visit more than the afternoon or evening. There is literally an entire country of motels, hotels, RV rentals, rest areas, and truck stops you can stay at before you need to stay with me. If you're one of those relatives that just shows up unannounced or on short notice, here are some tips to keep peace in the family. Don't just assume you can bring Aunt Carol and her two cats. It doesn't matter that Carol brought her two cats. It does matter, however, that Aunt Carol's a vegan. Vegans get really gassy after every meal. If you're a guest in someone else's bathroom, for Pete's sake, please light a match or two. 
If you don't like what I'm watching on TV, feel free to stare out the window. I know I'm not the best cook. You're probably tired of eating venison and ground beef. But along with all those other places to stay, I'm sure you passed a few dozen grocery stores on the way here. I think I just realized why family reunions only happen once a year. Just so you know, I've calmed down. The in-laws have gone home. Some people you just need to love from a distance. Like at least a state or three. I took what my in-laws said to heart. I listened to their complaints. So I painted the house, replaced the air conditioner, put an exhaust fan in the bathroom for Aunt Carol, bought a new TV, upgraded my internet, and even put in a new kitchen. Then I sold the place. I now live in a new undisclosed location without a mailbox. Find me on YouTube at my new channel, Ask a Farmer. Or just go to timthedairyfarmer.com. I hope you all are safe. Thanks for listening and keep milking it. All right. Well, thanks, Tim. It's good to have a laugh before we see these numbers. Corn and beans down substantially on the day. Wheat actually moved to the upside. Livestock and dairy also in the green. In the corn market, September down 12 cents at 336 and three quarters. December down 12 and three quarters. Close the day at 344 and a quarter. Over in soybeans, the August contract is down nine and a half cents at 887 even. November new crop down 11 and a quarter. Close the day at 890 and a quarter. In wheat, Chicago contract September up 10 and a quarter cents at 535 and a quarter. December up nine and three quarters to finish at 539 even. Looking over at livestock, August live cattle up 75 cents, closed at $100 even. October up 65 cents to finish at 104.5750. In feeders, the August contract up $1.22 and a half, closed at 135.75. September up $1.15, finished at 137.32 and a half. Mixed trade in lean hogs, front month July up 12 and a half cents at, excuse me, 45.9750. The August down 35 to finish at 49.8750. And over in dairy, that rally continues. July up a penny on the day at 24.18, with the August up 74 cents, broke $23 to close at 23.02. Without further ado, let's kick it over to today's interview, which Delaney, I believe, was about weather. Absolutely. We're talking to Ed today, Mike, as you mentioned, which is certainly timely as we're heading into the weekend here. Going to get hot and dry in some areas and wet in other parts of the country. Well, we have been talking a lot about weather on the podcast here over the past two weeks, but we are no expert to be qualified to talk about weather as much as Ed Valley of Empire Weather LLC, who is obviously a meteorologist by training and can talk about the weather a lot more accurately than Mike Ashton or I can. Ed, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thank you for having me. Hope you're doing well. Absolutely. We are doing well, uh, but we're experiencing quite a bit of hot and dry weather, especially across the Corn Belt. Ed, we hear a lot, you know, that maybe we'll get rain, maybe we won't, maybe it's going to continue to stay hot and dry. What weather patterns do you actually see happening here for the next month, which is really make or break time for this crop, this corn crop? Yeah, so it's a really interesting pattern because kind of the background state of our atmosphere kind of leans on the warmer and drier side. And we've kind of seen that over the last six to eight weeks. You know, June was very warm across the ag belt. July is relatively more of the same. The thing here is we've just had in the past, we've had at least some opportunities for rainfall that have really allowed us to kind of get off to a pretty good start here, all things considered. And as we move forward, I think it's really going to be important. We're tracking the moisture aspect of this pattern. And and the thing here is uh, 
moving forward this weekend, pretty decent temperatures, a decent risk for rainfall. So moving over the next few days, I think our, our fears are kind of tempered, at least for now. But as we get deeper into next week and beyond, there is going to be an opportunity for a ridge of high pressure to kind of move in here across the Ohio Valley, the the Central Plains, maybe the Southern Midwest as well. And that is really going to be our focus here moving forward. So in, in very simplistic terms, I think moving forward, we're not bad into the beginning of next week. But beyond then, let's call it the 14th or the 15th or so, beyond that time, I think that ridge is going to move in and that is going to lead to hotter temperatures. And it's really going to be all about tracking the moisture in this pattern. And there will be some, I think, especially the further north you go across the belt, you get up towards I-80, you get up especially towards I-90. I think we're going to have multiple storm clusters here over the next two to three weeks that should at least keep us adequate with respect to moisture. But again, the further south you go, you get south of I-80 towards that southern Iowa, northern Missouri, southern Nebraska, central and southern Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. That area I am watching for some pretty warm conditions developing here and a little bit less in the way of moisture, which I'm sure is going to be a talking point. So, Ed, um, I, I think you probably remember in 2012, it was really hot, really dry. So how is this summer comparing to the summer of 2012? Great question. And it's a question I've gotten a lot this week. And the, the simplistic answer here is it's very different. And the reason why I say that is if you remember this spring and this winter, we had a ton of moisture in this uh, in this in the pattern we saw during that time. And that has led us to a pretty good amount of subsoil moisture kind of coming into this hotter and drier stretch. So that's difference number one. Difference number two, I would say, is that June and July, while certainly not ideal with respect to precip this year, was a lot better than 2012. If you remember in 2012, we just had this big heat dome that set up and and rainfall, unless you were up in the Dakotas and parts of Minnesota, was just not very widespread at all. And this year, we've seen at the end of June, we had a nice reprieve from the heat and the dryness. We saw a pretty good moisture return then. And then we're kind of seeing that again right now. So the difference, in my opinion, while very hot in that that part is pretty similar, I think the moisture, not only that we've seen prior to the season, but I think the moisture moving forward and even during the season here is much better than we saw in 2012. And of course, that will have a pretty big impact on how this crop ends up. Yeah, absolutely, Ed. And I think a lot of people are watching to see what happens with moisture because we're continuing to see Willow Weather Premium be built into these commodity markets. When you look out then a little longer term to August, what's the weather looking like there? Because that's a make or break time for soybeans. Sure, yeah. And, And the thing is, is what we're watching here for July is what we call the global wind. And to keep it very simple, a negative global wind is what we're in now. And what that is, is more of La Nina-like conditions. And that simply means more ridging than we're used to, more warmer weather, more potentially drier weather than we're used to seeing in in a typical year. Now, we're seeing the result of that here in July already with some of these hotter temperatures we're seeing. uh, And of course, the forecast models being pretty hot as well. So that has been the big driver in July. 
And I think that's going to continue to be the driver as we get into August. And, and looking forward to August, it looks like that negative global wind will support warmer temperatures largely continuing. Um, but I think the ridge, instead of it being placed, let's call it in the smack in the middle of the country, southern Iowa, Missouri, eastern Kansas, maybe western Illinois, maybe it kind of dwindles and travels a little bit further south as we get into August. So for August, generally, we are seeing some warmer than normal conditions continuing, especially uh, in the Midwest, in the eastern belt, uh, maybe a little bit cooler further north and west. But I, I think it is going to be a talking point that the warmth is going to continue. But that could, that, that little difference with the ridge coming southward a little bit, that could at least reintroduce a little bit more in the way of moisture for the month of August. But generally speaking, I think weather is going to be a talking point through the end of this month and even into the month of August. I absolutely agree with you, Ed. I've been hearing lots of farmers been talking about the weather lately. I am down here in Texas in the panhandle, and mm -hmm. so we are having lots of cotton, of course. And so what are you hearing from, from cotton farmers specifically about their crop and, and how they're taking the heat? Yeah, I mean, so obviously down that way has, has certainly been on the tougher side. Um, from the few farmers that deal in that in that realm that I talked to, uh, it, it's certainly been a struggle. And, and I think moving forward, a lot of them are, are prepping for that struggle to continue because our forecasts continue to be on the hotter and drier side. And unless you get a little bit of luck and you can snag one of those storm clusters that come in uh, sometimes during the overnight and early morning hours, you know, it's, it's going to be tough to really argue that we're going to be hot and dry for the foreseeable future in those areas. So definitely not an ideal pattern in that part of the world. And unfortunately, I do see that continuing uh, for the foreseeable future. Ed, I know you probably talked to quite a few growers all over the country. What are you hearing from them as far as how this crop works or how this crop looks? Uh, we've heard from a lot of yeah. folks out in Indiana, Ohio. They've sent us pictures showing some pretty small, pretty lacking corn plants. But what are you hearing and seeing? Yeah, it, it's very, as always, very location specific, right? Um, I've, I've heard from some customers in southwest Kansas who have said that their dryland corn is dead because they haven't gotten enough rain and it's been so darn hot. Um, whereas further north you go, you get into parts of Nebraska. Uh, they've seen some rain recently, but definitely still some stress with all that heat we saw in June and into early July in that area as well. Uh, that extends right into western Iowa as well. Um, now, the further east you go, central and eastern Iowa, parts of Illinois, not too bad. I think it's been they've seen enough moisture especially with, if you remember, Tropical Storm Cristobal came up in the middle of June there to deliver some moisture. Uh, but then, like you said, you get further east into even parts of far eastern Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio, and into Michigan and parts of Kentucky, it's been pretty dry and it's been pretty hot. So areas out there still continue to struggle and could use a drink of water here. And then finally, moving northward into the Dakotas and Minnesota, for the most part, mostly positive news coming out of those areas, especially in southern Minnesota. I have a few growers out that way who are very happy, not only with the normal planting season this year compared to last year, but also the rain and, and lack of extreme heat that they've been seeing. So it's, it's very different depending on where you are, but generally the northern belt doing pretty well, the Midwest doing okay, but then you go into the southwestern belt and the eastern belt 
both of those areas seem to be struggling on the drier and warmer side. So I know that harvest is a couple of months away, but I think a lot of folks are trying to look to the future for a little glimmer of hope. So what kind of weather are you forecasting or expecting for fall harvest? So, you know, we're, we're just starting to get into the point where the research and the modeling is, is usually at least in the ballpark. Uh, you know, you get out three, four months, things start to get a little fuzzy, of course. But generally speaking, as we get into the, uh, into the fall, I, I do think generally the warmth is going to continue. So as of right now, of course, it's, uh, what, July 10th. So grain of salt needed. But generally speaking, I see a warmer September on, on the horizon here. And potentially that may even linger into the middle of the fall into October as well. So that bodes well for, you know, if you're looking at frost risk, maybe that might be on the lower side, at least for now, from what we're seeing. Uh, precipitation wise right now, really no extreme signals one way or the other. I do think though that drought that is kind of developing here in the Southern Plains that may kind of contribute to some of the, the fall weather because of course dry typically begets dry. And that's kind of what we're seeing here in parts of the Southern Plains. But I think for the rest of the region, there's really no extreme signals right now for any sort of flooding rains or, or very, very dry conditions. So really the, the most confident part of that fall forecast, at least for now, seems to be we're on the warmer side of normal, uh, which, like I said there, could bode well for minimal frost risk, at least to start the, the harvest season. Absolutely. That is a little bit of good news there, Ed, but we'll have to have yeah. you on when we get a little closer uh, to having folks rolling in the fields. Ed, before yeah. I let you go, tell our listeners how they can interact with you on social media or otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. So I work for and, and own Empire Weather LLC, empireweather.com. Uh, and I'm also active on Twitter at Ed Valley, two L's, two E's, WX. And, uh, I'm always talking to farmers, always looking for a good weather conversation. So don't feel, uh, don't be afraid to reach out. Happy to chat. Awesome. Well, Ed, thank you so much for coming on and updating us on the summer and fall weather patterns. Certainly appreciate it. Hey guys, when I'm not hosting Ag News Daily, I'm actually helping out with the Iowa Farm Bureau's Spokesman Speaks podcast. If you're from Iowa, you're probably familiar with The Spokesman newspaper. It has the largest readership of any ag newspaper in the state. The Spokesman Speaks podcast is an extension of that newspaper, reaching farmers and ag professionals like you on the go with the stories that matter most. This week's episode features discussions about COVID-19 relief that's currently available to farmers and the additional federal relief that could be on its way in the coming weeks. Yes, I know that all of the COVID-19 stories blend together after a while, but this is your chance to hit the reset button with the latest updates. Which relief options are still available to farmers and what's on the horizon? For those answers, you'll have to check out the new podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Spokesman Speaks podcast in your favorite podcast app or go to iowafarmbureau.com podcast. Weather is going to be moving the markets, and I'm guessing weather was a bigger factor on today's downward move in the grains than the WASDE report was. So keep your eye on the forecast, folks. Hot and wet, hot and dry, 
Cold and wet, who knows? The forecast is in front of us, but you can always uh, get good stuff from Ed. And you can always get good stuff from Ag News Daily. Check out our other podcast episodes at agnewsdaily.com or find us on social media at Ag News Daily on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. With that, Ashton, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.